Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of today's passage from Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. Philippians 3, verse 7 through 11. For whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Oh, this is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, years ago, over a decade ago, one of my favorite professors at seminary named D.A. Carson, Don Carson, shared a story about a pastor in Australia who was being interviewed by a non-Christian journalist. And the journalist asked this veteran Australian pastor, I, I know what you believe about this Jesus, about this theory of his death and resurrection. And the journalist went on and said, but what if, just what if we were able to scientifically prove without a doubt that Jesus never rose from the dead. That somehow in her hypothetical situation, we were able to prove with DNA forensic evidence that we found the actual bones of Jesus Christ, that he actually didn't rise again on the third day after all, and that he never ascended into heaven. And she said, what if we could prove all that? She was asking this pastor, would that change your faith? The Australian pastor pondered the question, thought carefully, and then answered confidently, no, not at all. That wouldn't change my faith. He said, it didn't really matter if Jesus actually literally rose from the grave because as he said, quote, he has risen in my heart. Oh brother. <laughs> What a horrible, erroneous way to answer that most pivotal question. If Christ never rose again, historically, literally, we don't have Christianity. We don't have faith. We don't have the promise of heaven. Oh, we are left in our sins. Some of you might be thinking, this sounds familiar. Where in the Bible is this addressed? Well, this is found in 1 Corinthians 15. The center of the gospel is what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, a reference most likely to Hosea 6, our Old Testament reading earlier, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
The apostle goes on to say that Jesus then appeared before the disciples and then to 500, all seeing him in his resurrected glory. And so if you're new here or even new to Christianity, this is of first importance. This is actually the center of the term that you might hear every once in a while, the gospel, which literally just means good news, that Jesus came to die, be buried, but then raised again on that third day. For what? For the forgiveness of sins, for the reconciliation of sinners who believe in faith back to the Holy God Father. More on that in a little bit. But friends, if Jesus never rose again, oh, we are to be pitied more than anyone in this world. As Paul continues in that chapter, he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, meaning those who have died in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If this is just some psychological, sentimental belief system just to cheer us up in this lifetime only, oh, we are to be pitied more than anything. And so we should all say collectively to this Australian pastor, you are wrong, sir. We have no real faith if Christ was not raised from the grave. Christianity would merely be squishy superstition if that were the case. What sets us apart from all other world religions was indeed that our Savior actually rose from the dead. He is risen indeed. This past Good Friday, an atheist professor from the United Kingdom posted what seems to be her annual mocking of Good Friday towards Christians, saying, quote, just a little reminder today, Dead people, dot, 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 don't come back to life. And I enjoyed one person's reply that simply said, I think that's the whole point. <laughs> Whatever naysayers want to say or mock, this is not a myth. This is not merely wishy-washy feelings. This is truth. This is fact. Christ's historical death and Resurrection is the bedrock of Christianity and our faith. And it was most certainly the bedrock for the Apostle Paul, who also wrote today's letter to the Philippian church in a church in the northern region of modern-day Greece. You see, the Apostle Paul is so shaped by Christ's death and resurrection, it completely set the course of his whole life here on earth and gave him the blessed assurance of the life to come. And oh, friends, I pray that today's passage grants you the conviction to live out this life in Christ, in full confidence, power, and assurance as well. And so let's go to today's text, Philippians chapter 3. I'll read verse 7 and 8 again, where Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For the sake I have suffered, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, 
in order that I may gain Christ. What is Paul considering as loss? Well, everything that defined him when he was better known by his other name, Saul. Everything in his previous identity that he cherished and was so proud of and thought was to his gain is utterly counted as rubbish compared to being in Christ. Paul was responding to the Judaizers, those Jews that denied Christ was enough and wanted to live by the old outward standards of the religiosity of Israel. Basically, believe in Christ, but you need to also believe in other things. Namely, you need to live like us in our customs and so forth. Paul was not criticizing them because he was envious of what they had. Rather, he says in the beginning of chapter 3, no Judaizer could ever compete with Paul's resume as a zealous Pharisee. If you have your whole Bibles open, I'll read just for for context a little bit earlier in verses 4 through 6. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he goes down this list in verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, meaning Paul's family followed what needed to be done by the book on the eighth day as prescribed in Genesis 17. He was circumcised in being identified with Israel. Then the phrase of the tribe of Benjamin, he was from the same tribe as the first king of Israel, King Saul, who some say was probably the reason Saul got his name in the first place. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. Again, ethnically, a pure breed, dating back generations. Paul was not someone that just converted to Judaism later in life. He was thoroughly identified as a Hebrew of all Hebrews. Then he says, as to the law of Pharisee, he was of the religious elite. Scholars note that he got the most advanced theological training that could be offered in his day, comparable to two to three PhDs trained under the most gifted scholars. And he became a Pharisee of all Pharisees. Just like forces, special forces are an elite group of the military, so was Paul amongst all the other Pharisees. And so if you think about it, if you were a kid growing up in Israel and you wanted to become a Pharisee, you probably had Saul's poster on your wall or a picture of him holding some scrolls, looking out into the distance. Never mind. Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Zeal is something to aspire to, of course, but only if it's grounded in good doctrine and truth. Paul's previous zeal was out of error, but he thought he was serving the purposes of God by attempting to destroy the start of the early church, the Christian church. Many passages in the New Testament talk about Paul's previous persecuting ways before he was converted. He led the deaths of many Christians and imprisoned many others and persecuted them. And he was famous in the circles for this leadership in that regard. Then he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Theologians note that he wasn't saying he was sinless or perfect, but according to what was outwardly expected of you in his day, Paul didn't slip up. If I can compare that to a student in high school, he never missed a class. He never chewed gum during a lecture. He got straight A's. He aced all his AP classes, never got detention. Paul was most definitely one of the most revered students of all time. Add that all up in his day and you got yourself a pretty good pedigree, a pretty impressive resume. But Paul, after coming to Christ, 
added all of that up and said, he took a survey of his whole life, he added all that up and says now in verse 7, whatever I thought was to my gain, I count actually as loss. This is remarkable because to repent of things that you're proud of or that you identify with is a lot harder than repenting of blatant rebellion. Or as one scholar notes, to most, renouncing perceived virtues is harder than renouncing vice, end quote. To repent and turn from idols is harder than repenting what might be considered, as some of us know the term, respectable sins. Meaning it's easier to renounce your previous life of lust, greed, and covetousness than your self-righteous heart thinking you're good enough in the sight of God. Years ago, as I was at an appointment with my chiropractor, I got in a minor car accident, and so I was seeing physical therapist and a chiropractor. And after hearing that I was in Christian ministry, he said, oh yeah, Christians, that's great. I mean, we all just gotta be good, right? And then we go to heaven. And before I could even say, well, actually, he crack. <laughs> just be good is the slogan of many Americans, is the slogan of many people on earth. Just be good. To what standard, though, is good good enough? This is what the game Paul was playing at before Christ saved him. This is what the reformer Martin Luther struggled with his whole life before being awakened by the gospel of grace. Oh, you'll never be good enough. You're quite the opposite. And so Paul understood this. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I have suffered for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Because Paul understood this. Nothing at all was more important to Paul than knowing his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing. And in order to gain Christ, to be united to him, everything else that he thought was gain is counted as rubbish. The Greek word for rubbish is skubilon, refuse, or as older translations have, dung, animal feces. It's meant to be graphic and repulsive. Because to Paul, that former life, his former identity, all that he thought made up him as a person, that former life was repulsive to him. And in contrast, everything found in Christ was the exact opposite of skubilon. And so Paul goes on in verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So in theology and found elsewhere in scripture, we call basically verse nine justification. And we need to hear this over and over because our hearts are prone to self-condemnation, but maybe you've never heard that term before. Well, what will grant you confidence standing before the Holy Father, God in heaven, after you die? For Paul, it's nothing but Christ and his righteousness alone. And Paul, if he was here today, would say, it's not your volunteering in your community, oh, it's not your serving. It's not you helping an older lady or gentleman cross the street. It's not your perfect tax records. It's not your tithing or your charitable work, nor your striving for holiness. 
Paul would say that doesn't grant you confidence to be with Christ in heaven. The only confidence you have is the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to you. Again, if you're new with us this morning, we don't use that word much these days, imputed. So instead of imputed, you can just replace that with credited. That as Paul says, through complete faith in Christ, which comes from God, we get credited with Christ's perfect righteous obedience on earth. That gets credited to our spiritual bank account, if you could think of it that way. And guess what? That great exchange has something going back to Jesus on the cross. All our failures, all our sins and shame, all our unrighteousness, that got imputed to Christ or credited to him on the cross. This is why he experienced hell on the cross. Because he bore for all those that believe the wrath of the Father that we deserved. What we discussed this past Good Friday. He was credited with all our sinfulness and mishaps and guilt and bore the punishment for us. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, we are justified and considered righteous in our legal standing before holy God. Now, Paul had every right to feel confident though, right? And so should you if you're a believer because this is what we receive in the gospel good news. So Paul, of course, should have confidence now, not in his former life, not in his future life in terms of being perfectly obedient, but he is confident, we are confident because of the gospel. But listen to what he says next. The answer, this answers to me the question I have all the time, now what? After my justification, after my salvation, now what? Well, this is what happens and is applied after the gospel takes a hold of your heart. Verse 10, to be found in him that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the crux of it all. This is his life calling. This is your gospel calling, to know him and the power of his resurrection. Originally, Paul wrote this, verses 10 through 11 in Greek, in chiastic form. If you just look at your text right now, it's harder to see in the English translation, but let me try to explain this. Chiasm was a frequent literary device used in ancient writings. Also, you can find many examples in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. At its most basic example, you would make statements that follow a pattern. So in chiastic structure, statement A is made first, then it leads to statement B, then you repeat the theme of statement B, and then you go back to something similar to statement A. So I made up my own. Baseball is fun. <laughs> Baseball is fun. That's statement A. And then what are the two statement Bs? You can play in the sun, you can play with your friends, and then back to statement A, baseball is fun. The goal of chiastic structure, one scholar said, is to create emphasis, repetition, or clarification. Often chiastic sentences would aid the oral listener in ancient context in remembering what was written or said. A lot of them didn't have the scrolls to take home with, so they had to hear and listen well 
to some of these literary devices used. So try to notice the chiasm here in verses 10 through 11, if you could just follow along with your eyes. Statement A is the theme of resurrection, the power of his resurrection. Statement B for Paul is that I may share his sufferings. The Greek word for share is, can be translated as fellowship or participation. Then I may participate in Christ's sufferings. Then the next statement B is becoming like him in his death. The Greek word for becoming is conforming to or experiencing. Conforming to him in his death. And then back to statement A, resurrection again. In verse 11, resurrection from the dead. Paul is making sure the reader, the listener, is focusing on the resurrection. With sufferings and becoming like him in his death, sandwiched in between as the application. Participate in sufferings, conform to his death, meaning die to oneself. And you can only experience the power of the resurrection in this lifetime through suffering. Becoming like him in his death, which then proceeds to a future bodily resurrection in the future, in heaven. Paul is not saying that if you suffer a lot here on earth, then that will buy you a secure ticket to heaven. That's not what he's saying. Rather, if you actually are united to Christ, if you belong to him, you will experience some sort of suffering just by being marked as a believer in this world. Something we've been talking a lot about in 1 Peter. And that suffering then leads you to a life to come in perfect a life to come in perfect bodily resurrection. Oh, friends, this is not popular today, this sentiment. People in the world want a gospel that is clean. They want a gospel that is easy and most definitely doesn't involve conforming to anything. They just want a ticket. As one scholar wrote, the world can deal with a baby in a manger at Christmas. Oh, but the cross is offensive. And we can add the resurrection, laughable, and a new way to live, a burden. The world finds this offensive. Even liberal scholars today scoff at the idea of a death and resurrection of the Son of God. These are liberal Christian scholars. They even call Jesus' death a type of cosmic child abuse from the Father. What utter nonsense. This was the only way, ordained by God, to go back to God. The only way we could be right with God was that Jesus would come to this dark world, humble himself, live a perfect sinless life, willingly die a gruesome sacrificial death for us, receive the wrath of the Father for the forgiveness of our sins, be buried and held under the power of death for three days, but then be raised again to life to vindicate the finished work of God. That all that was promised, all the way from the first instance of the gospel proclamation after the fall in Genesis 3, verse 15, to the law, to the prophets, all that was promised was fulfilled and vindicated by Jesus' death and resurrection. So friends, for the Apostle Paul, the ultimate goal was what? The text says, to know him. Oh, not just an intellectual ascent in the mind, and as one theologian wrote, quote, he speaks not merely of greater mental awareness, but of deep and personal union, end quote. 
to know him in his death and the power of his resurrection, to know him in Christ's love for us. I was thinking about an illustration that might help, it might help, it might not help, but I was thinking about this picture. I'm somewhat afraid of open water. I can't swim. Well, I can't swim well. I don't need lessons from you either. I'll just, I'll just bear that for the rest of my life. But there's this kind of fear of water, especially the ocean. But there's something so powerful about being in ocean water, especially when the high tide is coming. I grew up on the East Coast, going to the Carolinas. When that high tide is coming and the waves become these massive, powerful things, if I just watch that my whole life without ever visiting the waters, if I just watch that on TV, or if you simply read a description of the experience of what it feels like to be caught in the power of one of these larger waves and to feel the current pull you underneath, even if you explained it in the most intricate detail, I won't ever really understand. Only when I'm there will I truly see. Paul is not saying, oh, I hope to someday know Jesus. I've heard a lot about him. I met him on the road to Damascus. But I don't really, I, I, there's a future knowing of him. But until then, I, 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 want to, I want to just say every day, oh, I want to know him for the first time. Paul already knows Jesus. He is already saved, regenerated. What Paul is yearning for is not just a description of Jesus. He wants to be united to him daily in his death and resurrection. And this is why verse 10 floors me. This is Paul's greatest desire, not to make a name for himself or to sell lots of books or to get more posters made of him, but this, simply to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, which means suffering for Christ. That's his desire. For you, amidst all the hustle and toil and tasks of ministry or the burdens of life even, and the hard issues of the Christian life, do you ever pause and say, but this is all worth it? Because all I want is to know you more, is to know Christ, and to know more and more the power of your resurrection. Come what may, whatever may come the next day, God, all I want is to know you more. And so if you're following the flow of this passage, you want to know Christ more and the power of his resurrection? then Paul is kind of bluntly saying that you got to stop avoiding the life of suffering. What a paradox. Our greatest glory in him is seen when we are found in Christ low in our suffering. Put another way, the more we experience suffering and the dying we carry in ourselves by carrying our own crosses, the greater we experience resurrection, new life. Or as the great reformer John Calvin wrote, if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. And guess what? We have every resource available to God to carry through. You might be listening to this and saying, Robin, I, I don't know if I could live that way. I, I'm, I'm weak already as it is. I could barely get out of bed every morning. How can I live this life, resurrection, new life? Well, we have every resource available in God because the Bible says the same spirit that raised Christ from the grave 
which is why we have come here this Sunday to celebrate. The same spirit that raised Christ from the grave is in you if you believe. Only through the power of the resurrection can we obey God. Are we capable now to love him, humble ourselves, to hate sin more, love our neighbor and have right affections for him? It's all possible in the power of the resurrection. The same spirit that raised him from the grave is in you. Without that spirit, I get it, I'm with you. We're in the same boat. We can't even live another day. But the same spirit that resides in us, because of faith, oh, we can carry on. And as verse 11 closes then, so does the chiasm. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Calvin notes here the phrase, if by any means, does not indicate doubt, but expresses difficulty with a view to stimulate our earnest endeavor. For it is no light contest, inasmuch as we must struggle against so many and so serious hindrances, end quote. Brothers and sisters, do you understand the difficulty ahead in the Christian life? Then cling to the gospel of Christ and yearn to know him more as we look forward to our own perfect resurrected body someday to be with Christ forever. Whatever you're going through right now, friends, pain, suffering, anxiety and grief, depression, or a deep, quiet fear, Look towards the day of your resurrection. Dr. Nielsen reminded me of a D.A. Carson quip that I actually remembered Carson saying in class before or, or someplace, that when someone asked Professor Carson, how are you doing, how are you feeling? He would often say something along the lines of, nothing too bad a good resurrection can't fix. In today's passage, friends, we see the beauty of Resurrection Sunday encapsulated in these short verses. Look at verse 9 through 3 as we summarize. It's very neat to look at this. If you step back and look at the whole, these three verses cover, or the, these verses uh, cover the three stages of the Christian life justification, sanctification, and glorification. Verse 9 justification, our righteousness is from Christ. Verse 10, sanctification, a process of becoming more like him, is what that means, to know Christ and his power. Verse 11 is glorification, our future resurrection, no more sin, no more sadness, no more tears, no more death, no more disobedience, perfect resurrected life in Christ for all eternity. Oh, take comfort, Christian. Along your pilgrim's journey, you might struggle with assurance of salvation. Well, go to verse 9. Christ alone is the basis of your justification is the gift of faith. Oh, along your Christian journey, you might struggle with walking well with the Lord, becoming more like him in holiness. Remember verse 10, that Christ will be with us in our sufferings and our struggles in this evil world with our old sinner, sinful nature, that he promises to finish what he started. And when you feel as if it's too hard, you're weary for trying to live righteously, you feel drained from fighting the good fight of faith, look to Jesus because you will someday be glorified, verse 11, in perfection, and finally resurrect you from dead yourself, and you shall be with him forever and ever. In conclusion then, the promises of God never fail. Remember this, we break 
agreements and promises all the time. God does not. If you're a true believer here and God promises you a new life right now and a future resurrected body in the future to be with him for all eternity without sin or disease or shame, then you be sure to bank on that promise. Because for Paul, there was no other way. For us here, there should be no other way. So friends, don't just observe Resurrection Sunday. Live it out, brothers and sisters. And may God grant us the strength to rejoice in his promises and persevere. As Charles Spurgeon famously said, he wore my crown, the crown of thorns. I wear his crown, the crown of glory. Oh, our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son to truly save us in a real and true way. Oh, in true history, he came to live and die for us, but also be raised for us so that we can live and not perish and share in this victory. Oh, Father, prepare us to live with resurrected power. In Christ's saving name we pray, amen.